Well, as was mentioned, we are beginning our new series this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes. I know this is a book you probably visit often. Uh, Let's see if we can even find it first. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you're using this Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 472. If you go Psalms, if you hit the big book of Psalms, keep going right, you'll hit Proverbs. The next book is Ecclesiastes. When you found Ecclesiastes chapter 1, would you stand together with me and we'll read this passage this morning for you. I want us to just follow along together though. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. read together. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Happy New Year. (laughs) This is God's Word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Ask God's blessing, particularly on this time in His Word this morning. Father, we come now to Your Word, an ancient Word, written centuries ago, and yet a Word that has direct significance to us today, not only because of its subject, but because of its author. We know that Your Spirit inspired these men to write these words, and that same Spirit lives in us today and is here speaking to us through Your Word. You tell us that when you send out your word, it doesn't return void to you. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. I'm asking, Father, now would you accomplish that purpose in each one of us here today? And as I always ask, ask, Father, would you now move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. My mother is terrified of heights. Really terrified. So much so that you can just imagine how difficult it was for us to get her to join us on the Soaring Over California ride at Disneyland when we were all there last together. This uh, is a ride much like Soaring Over Canada down here at Canada Place, if you've ever been there. It's a ride that suspends its riders on chairs in front of a huge movie screen, and then the chairs dip and tilt as it shows you this incredible footage of a hang glider as it's flying over different landscapes. A a, a perspective, which I'm sure you can imagine, is is not necessarily appreciated by somebody who's afraid of heights. Probably not a perspective they'd want to seek out on their own. Uh, This was definitely the case for my mom. But when we basically just shamed her into going on the ride, pointing out 
listen, your eight and nine-year-old granddaughters are going on the ride. I think you're going to be okay. Finally, she went on. And I'm not saying that afterwards she decided to take up hand gliding. She didn't. But I think it's clear by the end of that time, eventually, she started to find that looking and seeing the world from a perspective that she'd been very fearful of was actually incredibly beautiful and truly enjoyable. She, she did enjoy it once she was kind of forced to go there. I, I say that by way of introduction to this series because the book of Ecclesiastes, we start in today, is also going to ask us to look at our lives from a perspective that we probably don't appreciate necessarily either. We probably wouldn't seek out on our own. Namely, to look at our lives from the perspective of our death. To to reverse engineer our lives, if you will, by considering first the inevitable reality that our lives are going to end. Which I'm sure has some of you already saying, Sheesh, how many weeks are we in Ecclesiastes again? This sounds awesome. Or, hey, couldn't we at least have waited until the spring when it's a little bit more sun outside before we begin the most depressing series in the world? Hold on, just bear with me for a moment. Hear me out. Because here's the thing. I think this book, Ecclesiastes, it's been given a bad rap. I think it's been mischaracterized over the years as this dark, cynical, depressing book that, not unlike the book following it, Song of Songs, many people often wonder if it's entirely appropriate that it's included in the Bible. If you've ever read that as well, you'll know what I mean. I think what you're going to see very early on is that cynical ranting is not the intent of Ecclesiastes at all. In fact, even within the book itself, if you look right to the end, chapter 12, we read right there, chapter 12, verse 10, it says of Ecclesiastes, the teacher sought to find words of delight, and what he wrote was upright and true. So that's the intent of Ecclesiastes. And beyond that, although the thought of considering your life from the perspective of your death might sound depressing at first... Let's just stop and think about that for a minute. I mean, isn't it almost cliche now to hear somebody say, I don't don't feel like I even truly started to live until I received that terminal diagnosis. All of a sudden, I'm just like, the the ropes are taken off and I'm just living life to the fullest. Haven't you heard that like time and time again? I'm no huge fan of country music, as most of you know. And yet, even a couple years ago, Tim McGraw had a, Classic song, maybe some of you know, called Live Like You Were Dying. There he, he's talking to a friend who received a, a terminal diagnosis. And he says, hey, how did you respond? What did it feel like? How did you respond when you got those words that said you're going to die? And the friend responds by saying, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And I loved Deeper. And I spoke sweeter, and I gave forgiveness that I'd been denying. And he finishes off by saying, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. I don't know why that is, why it is that we need the stark kind of recognition of our death before we finally find the courage to actually live our lives. Wish we didn't have to wait for that. Well, I think Ecclesiastes here is going to invite us to consider that truth that all, we already know, all of us know this anyways, and yet we, we struggle and we don't really want to look at the inevitability of our death, not seeking it all to be depressing, though, 
rather to encourage us to truly live, to encourage us to truly enjoy the lives that God has granted each of us in our days under the sun. Stand by a graveside and learn how to live. So says David Gibson in his book on Ecclesiastes called Living Life Backwards. I love that. Stand by a graveside and learn how to live. For in so doing, in much the same way that things that once seemed so important and essential to us seem to lose their weight and value when we know that we're dying, so too will Ecclesiastes help us see the goals and the pursuits of this life, which we all run after, that we think we find our meaning and purpose in. It's going to help us to see them very differently when we look at them from the perspective of the end. For you see, it's not death that Ecclesiastes is leading us to focus on actually at all. Only how we live our lives, how we view all the things that we seek meaning and purpose in in light of our death. It's very different which I think is one of the things that makes Ecclesiastes, although an ancient exploration of the questions of life and death and meaning and purpose, it makes it still incredibly relevant for us in our late modern context here. Why? Because we're still asking the exact same questions today. We're still seeking the exact same answers today. And if you look around, you're going to see people's answers to that question of what it is that gives us meaning and purpose everywhere you look. You don't even have to look beyond yourself because you have those things yourself that you're seeking out to find meaning and purpose in. And in this first message of our series this morning, we're just going to really dip our toes into the exploration as we consider this passage here today we're going to see a bit of an introduction, introductory material. Who, who is the author of Ecclesiastes? And then we're going to see a statement of the book's overall main thesis, as well as a, a general proof of that thesis. What, what am I going to be talking about in this book? But already, right out of the gate, we're going to feel the, the tension that such an exploration of life and purpose brings. And we're going to feel that tension because the simple fact of what I already stated this morning we don't like to look at life from this perspective. It's uncomfortable for us. It's not something we would seek out on our own. In fact, in a culture in a day like ours that wants to hurry death off behind closed doors and curtains as quickly as possible, and yet also wants to fight against its relentless pursuit with every uh, cream and moisturizer and Botox injection we can find, I think we're going to see that, that Ecclesiastes is pressing us to look at something here that probably we're even less inclined to want to look at than the original audience to whom this was written. But we dare not look away. We dare not. We dare not push in our earbuds and roll our eyes and walk away. First of all, because this is an inescapable reality. It's something each and every one of us are going to have to face one day. It doesn't matter how many... K's you clock on your Strava, doesn't matter how many yoga classes you attend or, or how many uh, like matcha tea, low-fat soy milk, whatever lattes you drink or Tough mutters you've completed, all of us are still one day going to die. You can't escape it. Secondly, one of the true gifts of Ecclesiastes to us is that it exposes, it, it unmasks, really, 
All of of the places that we seek to find our meaning and purpose, that we think answers the question of what gives us meaning and purpose, and it reveals to us just how empty and unable those things are to give us meaning and purpose. So it's a great help and guide to us. Finally, and best of all, the book of Ecclesiastes reveals to us the secret of truly enjoying this life to the fullest. The the very thing we're already seeking in all those other pursuits but not finding. It shows us the secret. And it shows us how to enjoy this present life as well as preparing us for its ultimate enjoyment in the next. That's what's waiting for us in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's also what we would miss out on if we walk away, if we close off, if, if, we, if we're just so afraid of the heights of what we're being asked to look at that we don't even get on the ride. So, what do you say? Are you in? Are you ready to do this? I know it can feel uncomfortable at first. I, I know it feels like maybe Ecclesiastes is asking a lot of us, but I believe in asking a lot, it also gives us even more in return. And it can actually follow through. It can actually deliver on its promise when we make the investment. So if you're ready, let's begin. And as we begin this morning again, being more introductory material, I want to look at these opening verses in just two ways, kind of just ease us into this exploration. We're going to look at it in two ways. We'll look at the teach, how the teacher states his thesis. He tells us what, what he's going to be talking about for the whole book. And then, finally, how the teacher proves his thesis. All right? How the teacher states and then proves his thesis. So, if you've closed your Bibles, would you open them back up again to Ecclesiastes? Follow along with me as we begin now into our new series this morning, Ecclesiastes, A Chasing After the Wind. So let's look first of all at how the teacher states his thesis. How he states his thesis. Now we're introduced to this person called the teacher in verse 1. Look with me there. It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, step back for a second, just to give us a bit of background about this book quickly. The Hebrew language in which Ecclesiastes was written, the word for teacher is Koheleth. I'm not going to say that right. Don't, you don't need to learn that. That's the name in Hebrew for teacher, which means basically, uh, it means someone who addresses an assembly or a gathering of people. That's what a teacher is, and that's what that word koheleth means. Now, in Greek and Latin, which the Old Testament was originally then or, or translated into, the word for the gathering of people, the, the gathering and assembly of people is ecclesia. So, what we have here now, the title Ecclesiastes, This is actually an anglicized version of the Greek and Latin word for the gathering of God's people, the gathering of the church. And who is it that in a church context most often addresses the church, the congregation? It's the preacher. It's the teacher, right? So the book begins here by stating that what follows here are the words of the teacher, the words of the preacher to the gathered people of God. That's what he's going to give to us here. It's the words of the teacher. But if you look at the second half of verse 1 there, the teacher, he tells us a bit more about himself, saying that he is the son of David 
and king in Jerusalem. Now, from that designation alone, as well as what he says about himself just further down in verse 16, saying that he was wiser than any other king in Jerusalem, most scholars agree that this is referring to Solomon, uh, the son of David who became king in Jerusalem after David. And I think a big reason that I think that's right is because of what we have recorded about the life of Solomon in 1 Kings that kind of chronicles his wise rule over Jerusalem. And it tells us about a scene very early on in his life in 1 Kings chapter 3 where God comes to Solomon and almost gives him like a, a, a housewarming present. Hey, you're the new king. Ask for me whatever you want and I'll give it to you, says God. But when Solomon responds, rather than asking for riches or long life or the death of his enemies, he asks God to give him a wise and discerning heart so that he might rule God's people well. And because he asks for that, instead of all that other stuff, God makes him incredibly wise and gives him that other stuff as well. So that Solomon goes on to become and and to to have this most prosperous, peaceful reign in the history of Israel. He's known as the wisest of all the kings. So there is some debate about the authorship of Ecclesiastes, but the majority of scholars as well as internal evidence from this book tell us this is most likely Solomon who's the teacher here. He's the one teaching us here in Ecclesiastes. And what does Solomon the teacher want to teach us? What does he want to show us? Well, we have the statement of his thesis there in book two. Here he gets the attention of the whole class. He walks over to the chalkboard and he writes out his thesis meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, which at that point makes you feel like you want to walk over to Solomon and give the guy a hug, right? It sounds like sadness from inside out, just like, oh, everything is meaningless, I guess. I mean, you just want to put your arm around the guy and be like, it's going to be okay, buddy. Like, it's not that bad. Don't just relax a little bit. But the thesis Solomon lays out for us at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, it's not the depressing ravings of a cynic. It's actually deeply significant and desperately needed, both in his day as well as in our own. Now, a few things to say quickly that are going to help us here and throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to understand what it is that Solomon wants to teach us. First of all, the word that we have there in verse 2, translated as meaningless, It's the Hebrew word hebel. Now, we're going to have a little quick Hebrew lesson here. Hebel is the word that's most often translated here and throughout the book as meaningless. So New International Version, if you're using this Pew Bible, the translators of this have said that the best way to understand that word is to translate it as meaningless. Some other translations translate it as vanity. Maybe you've heard it that way. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. Not vanity like looking at yourself in a mirror, but like as in in vain. Pursuing something to no end. But when you look to the dictionary here, the the literal on-the-face translation of Hebel is simply this. Mist. Breath. Vapor. Already, you probably see that that's not exactly the same as meaningless or vanity, although they're certainly related. I mean, if something has no substance to it, we could see how, well, what purpose does it have? So the translators have made a choice to say, let's call it meaningless. But that hits our ears as a modern English reader differently. We hear meaningless as, well, it has no meaning. But if we stick with a literal translation of that word, 
we see that that already is going to change the shape of the book. It's going to give it a little bit different tone throughout. So not to say that things have no meaning if we see it just as vapor, as breath. All of a sudden, the book takes a tone now that says, no, I'm not saying everything has no meaning, only that everything is ultimately temporary. Everything is brief. Everything, it's something that we can't grasp with our hands. So this would then transform Solomon's thesis from one that sounds quite depressing and bleak to something more like this, misty, like a puff of smoke, says the teacher, utterly vaporous, everything is but a breath. Already has a different tone to it, doesn't it? And when you consider other biblical uses of that same word, Hebel, for instance, in Psalm 39.5, it describes our life as Hebel, as a mere breath. That's how it's translated. Our life is a mere breath. Or later on in the New Testament, when James is talking about this same concept, he describes, he says, what is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. It seems that brief passing away, temporary, more closely reflects the meaning of Hebel rather than just a stark meaningless. It has no meaning. For while absolutely brief, surely our lives do, to some extent, have some meaning. Which means, I'm taking a risk here, but throughout this series, whenever we come to that word meaningless, I'm going to read it as like a mist, like a vapor, like a breath instead. Because I think what that does is it gives the meaning and value to our lives that Solomon intends to give it, while at the same time revealing that it is a fleeting, temporary, transitory existence that we can't hope to build any lasting meaning on. I think that's truly what he's getting at. The other thing to see is that in Solomon's view, everything is like this. Everything is brief, fleeting, like a mist, like a puff of smoke. Everything is like that breath you can see on a cold winter's day. It's all like that. And if you're like me, automatically there's something that clicks in us and we want to just pull Solomon aside and just ask him to soften that a little bit. Just qualify and be like, okay, but not everything, right? I mean, some things have meaning, right? Uh, that, that's how I have to want to respond. And, and, and I'll tell you what, yes, I'll say yes. Solomon, he is going to qualify this in a minute. But one of the things that we're going to see throughout this book is that Solomon is incredibly measured in the way that he says things. He's, incre- he's incredibly measured in what he says as well as how he says it. And he will not be rushed or hurried to give us an explanation. In fact, that's one of Solomon's teaching methods in Ecclesiastes to force us to sit in the tension of a statement or a question in order to truly experience the weight of it before he will release us by giving us an answer. He's not not just quick to get to the answer. And I think there's two things we can already take from that and consider as we've heard now Solomon's thesis statement. First of all, without even knowing exactly where he's going yet, just here's the statement All of life is like a vapor, it's like a mystic, you can't grasp onto it. Already just knowing that, but nothing more. Make a quick list in your mind, just right now, top one or two things that you think, this is something solid in my life. My life has meaning and purpose because of this. What is that for you? And then ask yourself, 
Is there a way in which Solomon's thesis, you can already see how it might be true? You're already starting to feel that uh uh-oh feeling of like, oh yeah. Things might not be as solid and permanent as we always thought they were. Second, I just want to ask a question relating to Solomon's teaching method. I want to ask you, how might all of our lives be improved, even today, if we took some of Solomon's approach to the questions and pursuits of our lives? That instead of just sprinting for the finish line every time, just just racing to solve the mystery of whatever question or, or pursuit we have so that we can just move on to the next one, what if we just allowed ourselves to sit in the tension a little while longer? Just gave ourselves permission to not feel like we had to solve everything so quickly. Gave ourselves a little longer to think more deeply, to consider the questions more deeply before feeling like, I've got to get to the answer so I can move to the next thing. I wonder if, if that simple step alone wouldn't bring more depth and richness into our lives that are often moving at such a breakneck pace. It's a wonder that we truly find enjoyment in anything anymore. That's going to be one of the benefits, I think, of this book. It's going to cause us, it's going to force us to slow down a bit because he won't rush to the answer. So that's the teacher's statement of his thesis. Again, hopefully it sounds a little bit less bleak, depressing to us when we hear him describing life as temporary and brief and not without any meaning. The last thing we'll look at this morning then is how the teacher proves his thesis. How does he prove his thesis? So Solomon, the teacher, has made this very bold statement about the true nature of all things in his thesis statement. Now what remains for him is to back it up, to prove it. And I think where we see him begin to do that is in verse 3. Look with me there. He begins by asking a question. He says, What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? Now, first, you might be provoked there by Solomon's sort of just materialistic statement in verse 3, almost kind of a, well, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Kind of a question as he inquires about what someone gains from all of their toil under the sun. It just seems like Solomon's all about dollars and cents here, not about a pursuit of God. Why is this even in the Bible if he's just telling us to pursue gain? Well, the first thing to say is that gain, although it is kind of a money business term, it doesn't necessarily have to refer to money in the bank. Now, I think what here Solomon means by gain is more the sense of asking, what's accomplished? What is uh, achieved? What can you actually hold in your hands at the end of the day after striving and toiling under the sun? Which is actually almost the identical question Jesus himself asks in Mark 8.36. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul. So when we see Solomon's question that way, really what he's doing is he's turning our questioning of him. We're saying, prove your thesis. He's turning it back onto us now by asking a question. So it's almost as if Solomon is asking us, okay, why would I say that all of our pursuits in life, that they're just pursuing a breath, they're pursuing a vapor or a mist? Well, he's saying just... Slow down and think about it for a second. Really look at your life. Really look at the things that you're pouring time, effort, resources into every day, the things you believe give you meaning and purpose, and honestly ask yourself, 
What do you really hold in your hands at the end of that day's work that's eternal? What what does any of us gain under the sun that isn't rusting, breaking down, rusting out, or, or that couldn't be taken away from us in a second? It's a good question. Now those three words at the end of verse 3 there, under the sun, uh, those are words we're going to hear quite a bit through Ecclesiastes. It's a repeated uh, phrase that he uses over and over again, and it's a bit of an interpretive key, actually, to understanding what Solomon wants to teach us. Because those words, as, as they would suggest, under the sun, by them Solomon means everything. Everything we see, everything we feel, everything we touch and experience in the natural world as we know it, under the sun. He's asking us to imagine all that that we experience in our lives from day to day. And then, as he asks us to think about that, he describes the rest of the verses of our passage, 4 through 11. He describes thing after thing, situation after situation in the natural world around us. All of these things, sun, generations, streams, sight, everything. He's describing things in the natural world that we see around us. But you notice in each scenario he gives us, each example he gives us, he's showing us how in every case, this is a circular, they all have a circular repeating nature to them that causes the one who sets out in pursuit of them to end up right back where they started at the beginning with nothing to show for it. For instance, verse 5, he says, okay, the sun rises, and then it sets, and then it hurries back to do it all again. What have we gained by that uh, after that's taken place? A, a day? Can, can we hold on to a day and say, this is the day that I lived? No, it's gone. It's just happening again and again. Or verse 8, he, he says, the eyes see and the ears hear, but they're never filled up. Our eyes never filled up with enough seeing, our ears with enough hearing. And we can't put it in a bottle and say, oh, this is all the stuff that I heard and saw. It's not something you can hold on to. We experience it, but it just keeps going. It just keeps happening over and over again. Now, uh, as you go down Solomon's list, I know people always have a problem. They always get tripped up in verse 9 and 10, which is one of the more well-known statements from the book, actually, where Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. Have you heard this before? This is the origin of that phrase. Solomon's saying there is nothing new under the sun, nothing we could point to and say, no one's ever thought of that before. And every time that happens, every time people hear that, what do they do? They pull out their phone, they pull out their whatever, and they'd be like, uh, what, what about this? Did you have one of those? Uh, my parents didn't even have one of these uh, uh, smartphones, so I'm pretty sure they didn't have those in your day, Solomon. Pretty sure there's some new things since you were around. To which Solomon would simply reply this. Oh, you mean ways to communicate with other people? Yeah, yeah we had those two in our day. They were called letters. Your grandparents had the telegraph. Your parents had a rotary phone. Your smartphone is just another way to do the exact same thing that we did in our day. It's just differently. That's it. So it's not that Solomon's saying there's no new inventions. He's not saying nobody ever come up with a, a new thing. But he's saying every single one of those new things you come up with is just the, a way to do the exact same thing that it's been done in the past. 
a new way to communicate with people, a new way to entertain ourselves, a new way to get from place to place, and on and on and on. Do you see? We, we often think of human history as this linear movement from the beginning of time to the end. When you think of it this way, actually, life is much more cyclical, isn't it, than linear. It continues to repeat itself again and again. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, a lot of times you will read this, myself included, when I first read this, and all of a sudden I think I get it. I'm like, oh, okay. All right, I see. I, I get it. By describing this circular, kind of temporary, vapor-like existence as life under the sun, Solomon's trying to describe life for an unbeliever, a secular worldview, just a naturalistic life apart from God. That's what it looks like, a life under the sun. Okay, I get it. Except, really? Is that really true? Stop and think for a minute. Well, there's no question, uh, our belief in God should and does alter our perspective on those realities. Does belief in God really alter any of these realities that Solomon is talking about? Does it actually change them? Are Christians somehow exempt from the same cul-de-sac existence that the rest of the world experiences? No. (laughs) No, we're not. It's no different for us at all. As David Gibson says, what Solomon's describing here, this is just what the world is like. It's reality. It's the same for everyone. Christian, non-Christian, adherent, atheist, we each live under the sun. This side of eternity, says Gibson, life is a breath. We do the same things over and over again in a world, repeating itself over and over again, and then we die, only to be followed by our children, who will do the same things in the same way and then meet the same end. Being a Christian doesn't stop that from being true. Rather, it should make us the first to stop pretending that it isn't true. And that, says Gibson, is the teacher's point. That's his aim. That's what he wants us to see. Solomon isn't describing here what life is like apart from God. He's describing life as it is, living in a world that's fractured and broken by sin. A cyclical existence that only Jesus' return will at last interrupt. And acknowledging that reality, according to Solomon, is the first step to truly living. To truly living in these days that we've been granted under the sun. In uh, Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, which maybe you're familiar with, Ebenezer Scrooge, he's visited on that Christmas Eve by three spirits come to warn him about his impending judgment that he's going to be facing if he doesn't change his ways, if he doesn't become a, a kinder, more generous man. I don't know if you've read that story or seen maybe the film adaptations, but if you have, you remember that just before he wakes up at the end of the night, The third and final ghost that visits him is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And in his final warning to Ebenezer, he stands in a graveyard and relentlessly points with his crooked, deathly finger towards a deserted grave with a headstone that bears Ebenezer's own name. Just points, doesn't say anything. Now, it's 
certainly much less dramatic than that, much less ominous than a scene like that. But in the end, what we've seen today and what we're going to continue to see through the book of Ecclesiastes is that Ecclesiastes is no less relentless in pointing us towards the end of our lives. But again, not, not to depress us, not to make us think that life is bleak and meaningless, but only with the intended purpose of calling us to live out our days under the sun now with infinitely greater meaning and purpose than we ever could have otherwise have known. That's the purpose of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be digging into this a lot more deeply in the coming weeks and looking at the misty, vapor-like consistency of many of the things in the world that we and many others currently see as solid, things we're frantically running after and trying to build our meaning and purpose on to one degree or another. It's going to show us just how misty and temporary those things truly are. But on this first Sunday together, I want to just ask you, would you be willing to try, willing to try this on for just a moment, to dare to shift your perspective in this moment right now from life that is focused primarily on the present, or maybe only goes as far as where we headed for lunch after now, to shift your focus instead to life with the end in mind and to ask yourself, where is the Spirit of God pressing on you this morning? All the things that you currently see as so solid and permanent that you're seeking to build your life and meaning and purpose on, things you say, this gives me meaning and purpose in life. Ask yourself the question, if tomorrow you went to the doctor and he told you you've got a couple of weeks to live, how would it change your perspective on those things that right now seem so important, seem so desperate to give you meaning and purpose? I need this. Does it change your perspective at all? Does it give you different lenses by which you start to see through those things that used to seem so big and important and solid? That is actually the unexpected blessing for us found in Ecclesiastes. And recognizing that perspective actually will help us to be even more effective witnesses to those around us because it's a common human struggle we all have. We begin to see each other as a common humanity with only one place that we can truly find meaning and purpose. And so it will, if we're willing to do it, if we're willing to try and to live that way, I believe what Ecclesiastes is going to do is it's going to wake us up. It's going to wake us up to the reality that we all have to face anyways. And by beginning with the end, teaching us how to truly live today. Let's pray.